You are listening to New Covenant Fellowship. So he's he's 18 years old and he is in love, or at least he thinks he is. What he does know is this: he has never felt this way about anybody before in his life. So he gives her everything. He he forsakes his family and friends in order to spend every waking moment with her. He spends his money on her, buys her gifts. I mean, he gives her everything. Gives her his virginity. And in so doing, gives her his heart. 18 months invested in the relationship. Getting in her world. And as far as his world, well, it was her. And as her mother said, he worshipped the ground that she walked on. He didn't Realized at the time, but it was true. And how did she repay him? Well, she put his tender heart in a blender and watched it spin around to a beautiful oblivion. She deceived him. She lied to him. She cheated on him. And this young man, who was generally a very positive person, a happy person, somebody who could see the silver lining on the darkest of clouds, he sunk into a deep, dark sadness and sorrow, a pit of despair. He was depressed. I mean, she was his world. She was everything to him. And now, gone. What, what did he have to live for? Felt like driving his car off of a cliff. In case you're wondering what happened to this young man, well, don't worry, he didn't drive his car off of the cliff. I know him, he's doing well. He came to know the Lord Jesus as his Savior. He has a beautiful family. He's actually a pastor of, like, the best church ever. So he's doing well. Maybe you can relate to this young man. Maybe somebody has wronged you. Maybe somebody has hurt you, violated the friendship broken trust, didn't keep their end of the bargain, didn't keep their word, failed you in one way or another. Perhaps they did something downright evil to you, whether they lied to you, whether they told that secret that you told them, shh, keep this between you and me, do not tell a single soul, and they told. Now everybody knows. Or perhaps it was a co-worker who gossiped about you to another co-worker or slandered you behind your back. Or they threw you under the bus before the boss in order to cover their own mistakes. Or perhaps your boss fired you for no apparent reason at all and gave your job to somebody who was far less qualified. Perhaps somebody used you. And we're talking one-way street kind of relationship. Forget symbiotic relationship. We're talking dysfunctional relationship. All they do is use you and abuse you. Perhaps they stole from you because they needed money for crack. You smirk, but it happens. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you have been wronged, violated hurt, harmed by another individual. Perhaps a boyfriend or a girlfriend lied to you or cheated on you, or worse, your spouse. And it's one thing, it's one thing when you're walking into the Alamo Draft House 
and the employee grabs the water bottle out of your wife's hand and says, thank you, and drops it right into the trash can. I mean, it's like, come at me, bro. It's a buster move. That doesn't, that doesn't send you on a downward spiral into a deep, dark depression. Right? It's, it's, it's over with in a few minutes, right? But when somebody breaks trust, when somebody violates the relationship and they are close to you, that's when they have the ability. That's when there's the ability to see yourself in a downward spiral into a deep, dark pit of despair. The closer a person is to you who wounds you, the deeper the wounds, the darker the depression that follows. Now let me share some insight with you. If you want to allow depression the victory over you. If you want to stay in that gloomy, sad state, if you want to remain in the pit of despair, let me tell you how you do that. You just drink the bitter cup of unforgiveness and resentment. Get angry. Relive the whole scene in your mind. Burn it into your mind. Replay it over and over. Think ill thoughts toward them. Find some music that you can relate to. If it was a, a girlfriend that did you wrong, listen to some Limp Biscuit. If it was your wife or your ex-wife or your baby mama, listen to some Eminem and get on some old Kill Kim something. Find some music that you can relate to and just get in. Stay there. You want to allow depression the victory? You want to be defeated by depression? Get angry. Be bitter. Hold a grudge. Retaliate. Seek vengeance. Hate what make you stronger. Turn to the dark side. But if you really want to be rescued out of the pit of despair, if you really want to have the victory over depression, if you want to defeat depression, the answer is simple. Love God love others. I mean, this is what we are about as a church. It's what we should be about as the church of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? His response was, well, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And you didn't ask, but I'll tell you about the second one too. It's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like the whole law hangs on these two commands. Most important commands. And it's what we as a church should be about in everything we say, think, and do. It's on the back of our t-shirts. It's on our outreach cards. You visit our website, ncfgeorgetown.com. Right there. Love God, love others. And it should be in some way, some shape, some form, some fashion. Even if it's in the background, it should find its way into every single message you hear in this room. Love God. Love others. How do we do that? And how exactly does that give us victory over depression? Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 42. In the Psalms, we find one of the greatest expressions of love toward God. Worship. Worship is one of the 
greatest expressions of love toward God. And the Psalms are essentially our handbook of worship, our hymnal, our book of praises unto God. And last week I shared with you that a very practical and biblical antidepressant is to read your way and to pray your way through the Psalms, identifying with the psalmist. And you'll see this pattern. There's this general sense in which the psalmist tends to open up crying out to God. God, vindicate me. God, rescue me. God, why are my enemies triumphing over me? God, where are you? And then eventually it seems that he makes his way at some point to the conclusion, yet I will praise him. I will worship him. Yes, these are my circumstances and they stink, but you are faithful. You are awesome. You have done mighty works and mighty wonders and you have countless times, time and again, proven to be a trustworthy God. And you are worthy of my praise. You are worthy of my worship. I will tell of your deeds. I will speak of your magnificence. You are bigger than my problems. We'll see a bit of that in Psalm 42 as we see that essentially the psalmists worship their way out of depression. Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1, we read, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my living God, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? We see that he recognizes his need for God. We see a deep desire for God. He continues, verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. What a sorrowful state. What a pit of despair this man is in. Breakfast, tears. Brunch, tears. Lunch, tears. Afternoon snack, tears. Dinner, supper, midnight snack, tears. Tears. We've been there, right? Don't feel like eating. Feel like crying. He's there. He's sad. He's sorrowful. He's in that pit of despair. He is all the while he says people say to me all day long where is your God and so to make matters worse they're taunting him where's your God where's your God verse 4 these things I remember as I pour out my soul he is pouring out his soul he's being open he is being honest he's not superficial He's not hiding his emotions. He doesn't play the tough guy. He is laying bare his soul before God and before everyone who will ever read this psalm. Just being open, being honest, laying it all out there. These things I remember. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. We see that he recognizes the value of communal and corporate worship. There is something to be said about being with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Something special about being together puts that silver lining on that dark cloud. It kind of helps you eke your way out of that pit of despair. And worship, we can worship by ourselves. We can worship the Lord in private. But there is something to be said 
about gathering together with your brothers and sisters in the Lord and worshiping God together. And he is fond of that memory. He longs for it. Verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Once again, this verse is indicative of his emotional state. He is gloomy. He is sad. He is depressed. His soul is downcast, disturbed within him. Verse 6, <clears throat> my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar. He remembers God, and he resolves to remember God even when he feels distant from God. When he feels that God is afar off, when he is in exile, he resolves to remember God. Verse 7, deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He sings. He praises. He praises. He prays. We see that his focus shifts. It's moving on the right track as he begins to worship his way out of depression. But then, here again, we see in verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Once again, very open and honest with his feelings, as if God doesn't know. He can't hide it. There's no sense in trying to be superficial with God. He knows. He's never going to say, ah, really? Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy. Once again, bearing his soul, bearing his emotions before God. I don't know about you, but countless times I have been in prayer with God and I have been in the midst of just laying it all out there, complaining about someone or some situation or something that's going on in my life. And then in the midst of that, God just brings to the forefront of my mind a parallel in my own life and just puts me right in my place and makes me go, oh yeah, I shouldn't be complaining about that person. I did the same thing two weeks ago in this way. Or I shouldn't be complaining about this situation. I mean, actually, it's, it's more like this. And, and just in the midst of that laying bare our soul before the Lord and talking it out with God and verbalizing it in prayer, something happens and God works with that and helps us to realize what I'm saying right now yeah, may, be, may be a bit of an exaggeration. We see here, in the same way as we see in several psalms, he starts out complaining, but he ends up in praise and worship. Verse 10, my bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? There are these taunts from the enemy once again. Verse 11, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. If that sounds familiar, it should. We just read it in verse 5. This is like a refrain. It's like a chorus. The psalmist is repeating himself. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the taunting, he resolves to praise 
God. He resolves to worship his way out of depression. He counsels his soul. Why, my soul, are you downcast within me? Yet I will praise him. Now, Psalm 43, move forward into that, and you'll see why in a moment. These psalms are very connected. Verse 1, vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. There's a man who has been wronged by others, and he finds himself in a state of depression, in a pit of despair. And once again, we see him praying, calling out to God, looking to God as the one who can vindicate him and rescue him. Verse 2, you are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Once again, we see this openness, this honesty before God. And here he is, feeling as though he doesn't have God's favor because the enemy is taunting him. The enemy is seems to have the victory over him. He's oppressed by the enemy, so he feels as though God has forsaken him. And so he's open with God about that. And as I stated earlier, when, when we, we can relate to this, at least I know I can, because when we're in that pit of despair, we're, when we're in that state of sorrow, that sadness, that gloomy state, isn't it easy to exaggerate? I mean, maybe one person has done wrong to us, but it's like, nobody loves me. Everybody's against me, and God, you're against me too, aren't you? But when we go to God, and when we're open with God, and when we lay it all bare before God, we start to talk through it. The longer we spend in prayer with God, the closer and closer we get to the truth, and the farther we move away from these exaggerations. It's like when we were kids, and Daddy said, no, you can't go there, or no, you can't do that. And we responded, you don't love me. You never let me do anything. And dad says, you want to know what it feels like to not be able to do anything? Okay. You can't do this anymore. Or this. And rattles off about 1,813 things that you can do. Puts things in perspective. You don't love me. Oh, yeah. When I did this for you, that's not loving, and this for you, and this for you. Here we go. Well, the same holds true when we go to God and make such radical claims. When we go before God in prayer, lay our soul bare, and we're in that state of despair, and we tend to exaggerate, and we're like, God, you don't love me. Well, all he has to say is one word, really, right? Um, Jesus, I don't love you. If you want but a glimpse of my love for you, take a look at the cross. Take a look at what I have given up for you, what I have sacrificed for you. I have forsaken you? No, 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 no. I forsook him. The punishment that brought you peace was upon him. 
and by his wounds you are healed. If you want, I can't hold your sin against you. You can feel the full weight and fury of my wrath if you want to. I don't love you. I have forsaken you. We spend time with God in prayer. We open up our hearts to God and lay it all bare. And it won't take long before just uttering those words before God, those exaggerations. We just feel a little sheepish in the midst of it. And God brings to the forefront of our minds the truth of the matter. Verse 3, the psalmist says, Send me your life and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. He's looking to God for guidance and for fellowship. Verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. He recognizes that God is his joy, that God is his delight. He resolves to praise. He worships his way out of depression. Verse 5, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Once again, this refrain indicative of the fact that he has resolved to praise, to worship his way out of depression. Now we covered a lot of ground there. That was a very swift movement through the Psalms, and we can't probably recall every point that we see in there, but let's see if we can kind of summarize it very briefly. We see that the psalmist recognizes his need for God, and we see a deep desire for God. He recognizes the importance of worshiping God, and he sees the value in corporate worship in worshiping together with the people of God. He turns to God vocally, openly, honestly. He lays his soul bare before the Lord. And we see that eventually he turns that complaint, that cry to praise, to worship. And as we see in this psalm, as we see in several psalms, the way to defeat depression, to worship your way out of depression. And as we see in his refrain, we preach to ourselves. We counsel our souls. Why, my soul, are you downcast within me? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise him. Now, the psalmist lived during the time of the old covenant age. So there were some restrictions so to speak, on worship. There were some specifics. There was a prescribed place. There was a prescribed way. But for you and I, we're living in the wake of a new age, the age of the new covenant, in which we don't worship God in earthly Jerusalem, at an earthly temple. We're not restricted in our worship to geography and architecture, for we are the temple of the living God, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone, the apostles and prophets as the foundation, and human beings as living stones joined together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He is 
with us. He is within us. We have access not only to the court of the Gentiles, to the outer courts, even the holy place. We have access to the most holy place. The holy of holies. We're not restricted in our worship. We don't have to go to earthly Jerusalem or to earthly Mount Zion. For as Hebrews chapter 12 says, we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. We have come to God, the judge of of all, to the spirits of righteous men and women made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the word of Abel. We are unrestricted in our worship, unlimited. We don't have to restrict our worship to what we do at the page house, Sunday mornings, at 10 a.m., we worship God in spirit and in truth. We can do it on Tuesday at 2, Thursday at 3, Friday at 4, Saturday at 7 even. Anytime, any place, in your car, at work, at school, at home, changing a diaper, taking your dog for a walk, all day or a day. Unlimited, unrestricted. When it comes to worship, wait for it, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. As we sang this morning, in my heart and my soul, give you control. Consume me from the inside out. Once again, I'm falling on my knees, offering all of me. You're all this heart is living for. And I don't know that we've sung this song in here before, but several times in my church life, I have sung, sang a song entitled The Heart of Worship. And I'll share with you the lyrics from that. It says, when the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart, coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Unlimited, our, our worship is not limited to what we do in here. It's not limited to singing songs, although singing songs unto God is a beautiful way to worship. It's so expressive of our emotions. But the thing is, we can't just come in here and read words off of a sheet of paper and call that worship if it's without feeling, if it's not from the heart, if it's just rote repetition, if we're going through the motions, if it's simple mechanics. No, it has to be heartfelt. And if it is heartfelt, that's truly worship. There's other ways we can worship God. We can write poetry to God. 
or about God. We can pray, praise Him, thank Him, just have a conversation with Him. We can tell others about Him, speak of His mighty deeds, of His wonders, speak of His redemptive acts throughout our rich history that we have in the scriptures. We can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. We can magnify him. We can glorify him. We can praise him and worship him by living out our love for him, by serving others, blessing others, seeking to serve, living out our faith as an act of worship. Ultimately, it comes down to focus. It comes down to focus. Worshiping the Lord is our great antidepressant. We shall worship our way out of depression. Now, if you're not depressed right now, if you're not in a gloomy pit of despair, then this doesn't really apply to you. There's no real sense of urgency or importance as far as worship is concerned. Because you're not there, you're not depressed, you don't need to worship your way out of depression. Not so. Even if you're not in a state of depression right now, it doesn't mean you're not susceptible to it. You're not immune to it. One day you might find yourself in a state of depression. And even if you don't, well, worshiping God, while you may not be worshiping your way out of depression, if you're not in depression right now and you worship God, you will worship depression out of your way. So for the depressed, worship your way out of depression. For the rest, worship depression out of your way. Again, one way to stay in that pit of despair, one way to keep those shackles of sorrow and sadness upon your wrists, focus on yourself. Wallow in self-pity. Don't focus on God. Don't focus on others. Focus on you. How crummy everything is right now. How pitiful. How mad you are at whoever wronged you. Just focus on you comes out of focus, right? A little illustration may not be that illustrative, but me, God, right? So where's my focus? If my focus is on me and I'm looking at me and my circumstances and how somebody did wrong to me, God's in the background. Well, if, if my focus is on me, this is all blurry back here. It's like I'm seeing, not really seeing it that well. It's, it's out of focus. It's not really even in view. But if I shift my focus from me and my circumstances and my sadness and my sorrow, my pitiful situation, and I focus on God and his glory and his magnificence and his faithfulness, then guess what's in the background? Guess what's not so easy to see anymore? Me. My circumstances. My sadness, my sorrow, my pity. Yeah, I can focus on the fact that I've been wronged, that somebody did me harm, that somebody violated the friendship, caused me pain. I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on Jesus on the cross dying because I did him wrong. I violated my friendship with him. Yeah. I could remain bitter 
and unforgiving, focusing on this person who did me wrong. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus on Jesus and the fact that he has forgiven me. As we saw last week, all sin is ultimately against God. And so if he has forgiven me, it's a whole lot easier. It's a whole lot easier when I'm looking at the Jesus who remembers my sins no more. It's a lot easier for this back here. It's easier for me to forgive and forget. Yeah, I could look at me back here and how pitiful and sorrowful and sad I am. But I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on God and how big he is, how magnificent he is, how glorious and majestic is he. And this this just kind of becomes... It's not what I'm looking at. It's not what I'm focused on. My focus shifts from me to God... Loving him, and I worship my way out of depression. And earlier we stated that the big picture is loving God and loving others, and we've discussed loving God by worshiping him. And we've explored the Psalms because the Psalms have a beautiful way of showing love to God by worshiping him. And thus we worship our way out of depression by loving God through worship. Well, let's talk about loving others. How does loving others draw us out of depression? Depression. Give us victory over depression. Well, in a general sense, much like the focus illustration with focusing on God versus focusing on self, in the same way, I can focus on me and how sorrowful and sad and pitiful and how stinky my circumstances. But if I'm focusing on loving others, serving others, being a blessing to others, what's in the background not really getting a whole lot of attention, kind of fading and just, eh? Me, my circumstances. But, that's the general sense. But I want to hone in on, not just others generally. I want to focus in on loving the others that are responsible for the wrong that made me feel this way. I'm in a state of depression I'm in a gloomy pit of despair because somebody did something to me, hurt me, violated the friendship, broke trust. How do I respond to that? Well, our natural inclination as human beings is settle the score. Retaliate. Show them how it feels. Cause them the pain that they caused me. Settle the score. But... The two wrongs make a right? Is that what we're called to? Is that how Jesus talked? Yeah, when your brother sins against you, you just sin back. Or did he say something like, no, 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 no. Not seven times, but 70. Seven times. Or as some translations say, 70 times seven. You shall forgive your brother. I mean, what about Paul's epistles? Is that what he said? Hey, when when somebody does you wrong, when your enemy triumphs over you, oppresses you, and taunts you, let's get back at him. Do him harm in return. No. What does he say? 
Do not repay, Romans 12, do not repay evil for evil. He goes on to say, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. I mean, if God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and have their sins forgiven, wiped away, remembered no more, who are we? Who are we to withhold forgiveness from somebody who sins against us? Who are we to hold a grudge against somebody who wrongs us? If all sin is ultimately against God and he's wiped it all away, forgets it, remembers it no more, far as the east is from the west, so our sin has been removed from us, we are forgiven what are we to do? If our great command, if our great purpose is to love God and love others, is it loving others to hold a grudge, to seek retaliation, vengeance, to settle the score, get back at them, to do wrong to them, to repay evil for evil? Is that loving others? Is that following the example of Jesus Christ and the apostles and prophets? Is that following the scriptures? Is that the heart of God? Is that the heart of worship? And as you do this, as you practice this, as you go to your brother and reconcile, you will find that oftentimes the relationship, the friendship, will be stronger. It will emerge even stronger because of what your friendship has now endured. And you've been through some stuff together. You're even stronger because of it. And the relationship is stronger. And the joy is deeper. You want to stay in the pit of despair? You want to give depression the victory? Stay angry. Be bitter. Be mad. Hold a grudge. But if you want to defeat depression... Love others. Go and be reconciled to your brother. I mean, we are highly relational people. Therefore, when our relationships are out of sorts, find ourselves in a downward spiral to a dark, dark place. But we hold the key to unlock the gate so that we can climb out of that pit of despair. And the key is true Forgiveness from the heart. Now, you may be thinking, how? I mean, how? It's easier said than done. Because when you're depressed, when you're in that sad, sorrowful, gloomy state, when you're in that pit of despair, you don't feel like it, do you? You don't feel like eating. You don't feel like getting up. You don't feel like forgiving. You feel like being bitter. You feel like holding a grudge. You don't feel like worshiping. You feel like wallowing in the mud of self-pity. Well, one person once said, maybe more than one person said it, 
but I know of a person who said it. Common sense isn't always common practice. Right? We can know what we should do, but knowing and doing are two completely different things. So this is when we dig deep. All right? This is when we dig deep into the theology of that famous and extremely successful shoe store and just do it. See, there's times in life when you just don't feel like it. You don't feel like you can do it, but you can, and you must. I mean, there's actions that we know are necessary, but we don't always feel like doing them. Do you always feel like going to work in the morning? It helps. It helps when you feel like going to work, but you're human, so I'm guessing you probably don't always feel like going to work. So do you just stay home? I mean, you can, but after a week or so of doing that, your finances are hurting. You're going to get your butt up, and you're going to go. Why? Because it's important. It is important. We cannot let our feelings dictate our actions. We must let our doctrine dictate our actions. And our doctrine is love God, love others. So when you don't feel like forgiving, just do it. When you don't feel like worshiping, Nike, baby, just do it. Easier said than done. Oftentimes, the feelings will follow the actions. But we can't sit around and wait till we feel like it. Just do it. So this afternoon, when you're at lunch with your friends or family, or at dinner with your friends or family, and they say, how was church today? What did you guys discuss? What did you learn at church today? This is what you tell. This is the closing summary statement. Oftentimes, we find ourselves depressed. We find ourselves in a pit of despair, in a state of sorrow, because somebody else has wronged us. And we can respond in different ways. And sometimes we can respond with bitterness, anger, and resentment, holding a grudge, seeking retaliation. Other times, we can, we can turn to other worldly sources, alcohol, drugs, comfort food, angry music, Sad music, a TV show. But ultimately, those are, those only provide superficial comfort. And they just help us to deal with depression. They don't give us the victory. They don't help us to truly defeat depression. So if you want to defeat depression, Love God. Love others. Love others by forgiving them truly from the heart. Serve them. Be a blessing toward them. And love God by praying to Him and praising Him. Ultimately, in a word, worship your way 